Hi everybody, welcome to Scottsdale's Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is 30th of July. My name is Audrey. I'm a great <clears throat> compulsive overeater, and I'm your host for today's study. Your co co-host that we have today is Sue L and Johan. If you need to ask any questions during the meeting, please contact myself or the other co-host. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer sessions, which follows, will not be recorded. I will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. We also ask if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, please turn off your video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen at any reason. And I will now hand you over to Harlan. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you very, very much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I'm not going anywhere for a while, so we're good to go for the next little while. But when I do have to leave from now on, instead of having no meeting, we're going to have a speaker. They're not going to do big book like I do, but we're going to have a speaker. So we're going to start instituting that when I do have to be gone from this Saturday morning session so that we'll have more continuity. I'm so glad you're back with us. I'm so glad you're here. It is a beautiful day. I hope it is where you are as well. July 30th. Can you believe that we're about to enter into August? My God. And it's just the year. Life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer to the end you get, the faster it seems to go and go and go. Uh, so it's it's really amazing that it's already going to be August here by the time Monday rolls around. Just unbelievable. We are going to now open the chapter to agnostics. And I get asked this because, you know, me, I when we're doing the doctor's opinion, I love talking about that. We do Bill's story. That's I love talking about Bill Wilson and his story. But people will ask me from time to time, what is this chapter that you don't like talking about? And this is the chapter I don't like talking about. The reasons that I don't like talking about this chapter is when I say the word God, and there's 92 people here besides me, there's 93 in all, there are 93 different images of what that word means. And to some of you, you have a peaceful, harmonious, beautiful relationship with God. And to some of you, that word or that concept, it represents broken dreams. It represents people who died when you prayed they wouldn't. It represents gifts that you never received. It represents all sorts of disappointment. And I think that the most hard-hitting disappointment is that you have prayed to God on many occasions that the paying way, that the gym, that the diet, that the food plan, that whatever it is you were doing to try to beat back the horrific nightmarish effect of the disease of compulsive overeating did not work. And so you came in here 
and you came in and you heard this word God, and either you did run out screaming or you wanted to. Just last night, just last night, we had a lady who came to our meeting in our Scottsdale Zoom meeting, and it was her first meeting, and she just couldn't get over that we were talking about God. And during our question and answers that we do for the newcomers at the end, uh, just like we do here, she was questioning that. She really couldn't understand why we were talking about God. And I remember that as a child, I went to the synagogue at the corner of where we lived. I'm, I'm from Devon Avenue in Chicago. I'm a West Rogers Park boy. And at that synagogue, they were telling us, teaching us about God, and they were teaching us about prayer. And you know what? I'll be very, very honest with you. It meant nothing to me. It meant absolutely nothing to me. They instilled in me a frustration. What they instilled in me was I was never seemingly good enough. I was never seemingly obedient enough. I was never seemingly what it was that they were looking for in terms of a perfect member of our faith. I just couldn't make the mark. And there were other things in my life that were hideously painful, very painful. I had a mentally ill mother. My mother had three distinct personalities. She was a two-year-old, three-year-old, and then without warning, without any time frame, she was a screaming, raving lunatic. And then without warning, she could be a very, very together person, very up on current events, very up on politics, very up on different things. You could have a very intelligent conversation with her, and then she would revert back and be a two-year-old or a screaming, raving lunatic. There was never seemingly any warning or any rhyme or reason as to the switch. My father was an immigrant. My father was 54 years old on the day that I was born. He was not like a father in some ways, although he loved me with all of his heart and I him. He really couldn't do the things with me that little boys do with their dads. We never played ball. We never rode bikes together. We never did any of that stuff. Now, are any of the things that I'm telling you reasons why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. Has nothing to do with it. If I would have grown up on the good ship lollipop, I would have been a compulsive overeater. If my father and mother were what I always wanted was Rob and Laura Petrie. I wanted my mother to be beautiful like Mary Tyler Moore. And I wanted my dad to be young and beautiful. And they would dance in the living room and be wealthy. And that was what I wanted. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie. I got Max and Virginia Grabowski instead. Quite a different scenario for sure. But what I can say to you is that this word God aroused within me a certain, not only an antipathy, but it aroused in me a certain anger. I don't know any other way to really describe it to you other than 
anger. What I was angry about was I couldn't be the perfect little Jewish boy. I was never religious enough. I rode my bike on Saturday, which is forbidden. I went to the movies on Saturday. When I could, I went to Cub games on Saturday. None of these things were okay in the synagogue that I grew up in. But more than a synagogue and more than a rabbi and more than a specific religion, this word God aroused within me a frustration because no matter what I seemed to pray for, it seemed to me I didn't get it. So eventually I said, well, screw you, God. You ain't in my corner. I'm not going to be in your corner. Oh, that really shakes God up quickly when you get mad at him. Oh boy, that he really just wakes up at that point and says, what can I give you? A Cadillac or what, you know, what do you know? That was not what my fate was. And I came into this program and I found out some things that I didn't know. Here's what I did not know. I found out that there were lots and lots of other people who suffered like me. Some of them were male and some of them were female and some of them were tall and short and black and white and they were Catholic and they were Protestant and they were Jewish and they were Buddhist and they were Muslim and they were whatever they seemed to be. It did not seem to matter because no matter what I did, I found that I was not very different from the people sitting in the room with me. Now, when I was sitting in the room with them and they with I, we were from the same geographic location in Chicago. And if you go into a neighborhood of Chicago, you generally will find homogeneity. You'll find that the Irish live here and the Polish live here and the Catholics and the Jews and the Blacks and the whites. You generally find homogeneity, although there are some exceptions, of course. When I got on Zoom, that difference was even more pronounced, that there are people not only in this Zoom room, if a room is an appropriate, I think it's the appropriate uh, terminology, they call it a Zoom room. But if you look, not only are we from different backgrounds and we're from different nationalities, we're different countries and we're different colors and we're different things. I wish we actually had a little more diversity in OA, but we won't get sidetracked by that right now. I think we'd be a lot stronger if we had better diversity and we have fallen down in this area very, very seriously. Uh, even one of you is a Boston Terrier that I can see right on my screen here. So there's a Boston Terrier that's here. And I know that in Palmdale, California, we have a couple of Labrador retrievers that attend meetings very, very regularly. So we have differences and yet we are the same. I really, really believe this with all my heart, with exceptions to the rule, of course, maybe you come from here and I come from there. If you cut us, we're the same person. We're really, the, we're just different faces of the same person. Whether you're young or you're old or whatever you are, you find when you do enough fifth steps and enough 10 steps that we are so the same that we are more the same 
then we are different. And I never could have suspected that. But this relationship with God is what I want to, um, as my friend in New York City says, I want to drill down on the relationship. Because here is what I found out that I didn't really know. Money and earthly things, fame and fortune, poverty, living in this part of the country, living in that part of the country, living here, living there, makes no difference. That the only solution that we have is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. That if you suffer from compulsive overeating, as I have from the time I was born, that there is no other way out. Now, one of the things that I'm going to be talking about as we move through this chapter, and we are going to begin just to let you know on page 44, we're not ready yet. We're, I'm going to talk to you for a while before we get to page 44, but I just want to let you know that's where we're going to start. One of the, excuse me, one of the things that we are going to be talking about are the misconceptions of this word agnostic. That agnostic is not an atheist. It's not a believer. It's someone without knowledge. Ag means without knowledge. Gnostic is knowledge. Someone without knowledge. And a believer believes very strongly that there is a God. And I have seen rabbis, priests, nuns, deacons, ministers, preachers come through the doors of Overeaters Anonymous and fall on their face in the second step. Because now we're talking about step number two, because we've done step one for the doctor's opinion, Bill's story. There is a solution and more about alcoholism. And now we're going to embark on step number two. Just like a food plan, just like life, we're going to clear up to the best of our abilities in not just today, but in the following weeks, that this relationship with a power greater than yourself, I'll try not to use the God word unless I have to use the God word. But I want you to understand, and I'm going to repeat this again I'd rather say it too many times than not enough times. When I speak of God or a power greater than yourself, I am speaking about your conception of God. My conception of God does not have to match yours in the least. The only thing that has to match up is this fact. The God of my understanding and the God of, oh, we even have a cat. I didn't even realize we had a cat. Okay, the God of my understanding and the God of your understanding must fit a criterion that is universal but necessary. What is that criteria? It must be a power greater than yourself. It must be a power greater than yourself. And as we embark upon this chapter, what we find in step two, is that as the relationship between yourself and your food plan 
and yourself, you and the world around you is ever changing, your relationship with a power greater than yourself must also be flexible, ready to change. Now, I'm not saying you have to change religions. I'm not saying you have to change the way you pray or what you do. But the relationship that I have with God has to deepen and improve and grow all the time. That the only way I can maintain is to improve. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we practice. This relationship with God must be a relationship like I have with friends. The relationship that I have with my friends will attrit and die. It will die from attrition if I never call you, if I don't return your phone calls, if I don't return your emails. Eventually, the dumbest of you will get the point, get the message. I no longer want to be friends with you and you will not contact me anymore. That's like a social contract, right? That's the kind of social, unless you're a stalker or you're crazy, all right? Well, the relationship with God is going to be the same way, is it not? That the relationship that I have with God must deepen over time. And the way that I deepen that relationship is through prayer and meditation and most of all, action. When I say action, I mean sponsorship. I mean service. And if I don't serve God, and if God is not the foremost thing in my mind, I will not recover. Does that mean you have to be a member of my religion, my belief, my concept? Absolutely not. Absolutely no way does it mean that. But what we're going to find out Oh, there's Carl. But what we're going to find out very, very quickly in this program is that abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. I know that sounds good. I know you hear it at meetings every day. Abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. Abstinence is very, very important. There is no question that without abstinence, I have no recovery. I have no program. I have no nothing. Without abstinence, I am not able to function as a recovering person because I'm drunk. I'm altered. But abstinence cannot be the most important thing for me without exception if I am to recover from this disease. What must be the most important thing in my life without exception? My relationship with a power greater than myself. In the step itself, it does not say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. It does not say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. It says, came to believe that a power greater than myself could, will restore me to sanity. And sanity 
Sanity is much more open-ended, all-inclusive, all-inclusive in, in my life than either abstinence or sobriety. Because what you find out when you've been here a long time, and when I say a long time, that's relative. For some, it will be three years. For some, it will be 12 years. For some, it'll be 20 years. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. But this is what you'll find out. As you move forward in your program of recovery, you will begin to heal if you are abstinent and sponsoring and doing the things that you need to do to work the steps. You will find healing and mending in ways you never imagined and areas of your life that you did not come here to find answers to will get healed. Many of you will become the person that God always intended you to be. You'll say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. And you will stand on your feet and be who God wants you to be. You will be strong where you were weak. You will not be as afraid of what people think of you as you will be afraid to think, I better do the right thing because I don't want to have to deal with the emotional fallout of not doing the right thing. And that means you are going to become more okay with people that may not like you or may not agree with you. There's a concept that some of you are thinking, no way, yes way, yes way. And so what we find is that codependency starts to heal and alanonic issues begin to heal and confusion begins to get cleared up. We are less dependent and more independent than we have ever been in our lives. And here's something else that happens. You start to like yourself in ways you never dreamed possible. I don't mean narcissistically. I don't mean ego-driven, ego maniacal, madness-wise. I mean like yourself rather than hate yourself. You will be more accepting of the world around you and yourself. You will not see yourself as your own whipping boy. If you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself at times, you wouldn't have a friend in the world. You, your self-speak is often harsh and abusive when you come in here because you're ultimately mad at God, but you are also mad at yourself. And you will often speak to yourself and tell yourself that you're stupid and tell yourself that you're an idiot when that's not true. It's simply not the case. So this is, these are things that take time. And for many of you that are in your beginning phases of this, you are just trying to put one foot in front of the other, and you are trying to stay abstinent one day at a time. And what it's about right now is the scale and the size meter. On For men, it's the waist size. For women, it's the dress size, whatever that may be. But this seems to be the barometer of how am I doing? 
But after a while, when that barometer no longer serves you, what the barometer will become without announcing itself, without you knowing it's, it's happened, you're going to start to say, when you do your 11th step at night, you're going to start to say, often, you're just a human being doing the best you can. Because it says we constructively review our day. And when you first come in, you destructively review your day. You beat on yourself emotionally, chastising yourself as you would a, an unruly child or person. You chastise yourself for making mistakes. You're going to be more at peace with yourself. So these are the things that are not seen or shown or even written about. But these steps have another result other than a spiritual awakening. You will get right with yourself. You'll get right with God and ultimately right with your fellow human being. That you will be able to walk the street a free woman or free man holding your head up high because you have done the best you can to right the wrongs of the past and you have come to a peaceful, peaceful relationship with that power greater than yourself. So we're going to have these kind of conversations as we move through the chapter. But it is very important for us to state where we're going so that we can follow the map of the chapter. But before we go to page 44, I also want to point out the fact that he wrote this chapter and called the chapter, we agnostics, not those agnostics, to the agnostic, the, the agnostic, he said, we agnostics. Now, when he says, we agnostics, you may say to yourself, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Baptist. I'm a good Lutheran. I'm a good Jew. I'm a good Buddhist, I'm a good Baha'i, whatever it is you are, Muslim. It, 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 yes, it does. Because in the most faithful person, there are pockets of agnosticism. And when we talk about pockets of agnosticism, what we're referring to specifically, and this is something that applies to pretty much all of us, you may have an idea in your brain that there is a God and you read in the book that there was the splitting of the Red Sea or you read in the book about the burning bush or you the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. These are miracles. These are things that happened out of miracles of God. Who would have thought that the Cubs, as crappy as they were for generations, 108 years, could ever have won the World Series? And yet it happened. It happened. But there are pockets of agnosticism that we hold on to. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's ego. But probably a combination of ego and other defects. Defects are just the illegitimate children of of ego. But when we say, will God help me find abstinence? Yes, but you have to take action. God is not a genie or a witch. God is not Santa Claus 
or the Easter bunny. He is not any of those things. We're going to have to, will God help me in the area of relationship? Will God help me with my child? Will God help me with my finances? The two most impactful issues most people have, if you've listened to as many fifth steps as me, is finance and romance, finance and romance. No areas will spring forth to cause fear and resentment like finance and romance. Will God help me with finance and romance? Yes, but I have to let him in and I have to get my ego out of the way. How do I do that? I'm going to work the steps and help others. Dr. Bob said at the end of his life, trust God, clean house, help others. And it's as effective an instruction today as it was then. Trust God, clean house, help others. If I trust God, clean house and help others, God will move into my life and create miracles I never, ever dreamed possible. There are things about my life I wish were different. I know I'm not different from you. There are things in your life that you wish were different. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how whatever you are. I don't care whether you're male, female, whatever, tall, short, black, white, green, yellow. It doesn't seem to matter. There are things about our lives that we wish were different. And one of the things people say is, well, if I'm a believer, why do I still have aggravation? Because God wants to keep your game sharp. He wants you very focused on him rather than other things. That's my opinion. But what happens is we stop, we, we lose sight of the wonderful things about our life. I own this house. It ain't the Taj Mahal, but it's mine. It's very, very modest. I back up to one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. I back up to an area code in Scottsdale and Paradise Valley where the cheapest house on the block is several million dollars. I am not in that category by any stretch of the imagination, but nobody's going to raise my rent. Thank you. Somebody just showed trust God, clean house, help others. Nobody's going to raise my rent. And I own this house. And the only debt I have is my mortgage. I have no credit card debt. I have no other debt. I have a, I have a mortgage that I pay every month, just like 99% of the people out there in the world. I have good health. I went to the cardiologist yesterday. I'm used to being screamed at by doctors and yelled at by doctors. And they throw things at me, not at me, but they throw things when I, you're going to die. And they scream and they yell. I still have those memories. And he says, wow, you're doing great. Your weight is good. Your blood pressure is good. Your everything is good. Come back in six months. You're doing fine. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. I'm not used to hearing that from doctors. I went to the nutritionist yesterday. I hate driving in Phoenix. I hate it with a purple passion. That's why I love Scottsdale. I don't like driving in Phoenix. Phoenix is 
about 20 minutes that way, but I had to go deeper into, much deeper into Phoenix than just to get, you know, where I normally would go. And that means I'm going to encounter bumper to bumper traffic and I'm going to encounter all kinds of congestion that I don't like. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with it. I went to the nutritionist yesterday and she said to me, your weight is good. Everything is good. We're not making any changes in your food plan at this time. I almost kissed her, but the cops frown on that. But the bottom line is, is that I got all the news that I could have ever wanted. And what do you think my reaction was when the cardiologist and the nutritionist are telling me everything is coming up roses? I got in the car and I thought to myself, man, I wish I had a wife. I wish I had somebody to go home and tell the news to that wasn't on the phone. I can only tell it to people on the phone. I told some guy that was at the bank ATM, I said, hey, my cardiologist and my nutritionist think I'm doing great. So he was nice enough to turn around and give me the thumb up, but he doesn't know me and I don't know him. And he probably thought, uh oh, this guy's crazy. I'm going to get away from him. But the bottom line is my mind focused immediately on the negative. My mind focused immediately on what I don't have. That's the human condition. Because the ego is insatiable. The ego is insatiable. It cannot be satisfied. Now, there are There is somebody in Illinois who won like a billion dollars in the lottery yesterday. I heard it all over the news this morning. That person is probably complaining about the taxes and complaining about, you know, whatever. And uh, who's going to ask them for money and who's going to hit on them for money or whatever. I don't know. I'm just guessing because that's the human condition. So let's go to page 44. And with the things that we've talked about in mind, we're going to begin the chapter, We Agnostics. And I don't care who you are or how religious or not religious you are. Not religious is not good English. Irreligious, unreligious, unreligious. You are. This chapter, you are going to find, if you open your mind to it, you are going to find pockets of agnosticism where you have never allowed God to dwell before because you doubted his power. You didn't want him in there because you didn't trust that you would get the results that you wanted. And what we're going to endeavor, not just in this chapter, but for the rest of our lives, we are going to build up a belief a trust that God's way is better than anything we could have planned. And when we see that, we will forget it right away because that's the ego. It has the built-in forgetter. So we're going to develop this keen sixth sense. And the sixth sense is the sense that there is a God it's here. I didn't say he or she. I said it's here and that all is well. 
So be you a cat or a dog or a Boston, well, Boston Terrier is a dog, Labrador Retriever from Palmdale, wherever it is you are, whoever you are. Let's go to page 44. There's a Chihuahua we got up here now. We got a little Chihuahua with Rottweiler coloring. And we've got lots and lots of different things. And we even, I think this is the first time we actually have a cat in our meeting. And I don't know that I've ever seen a cat at our meeting. So welcome, Kitty, welcome cat, and we're going to start. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. Let's stop right there. What is it we learned about alcoholism? Well, there was five things that we learned about alcoholism, two characteristics and three traits. The two characteristics of alcoholism are that it is a allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. And the sidekick of the twist of the mind is the mental blank spot. And the mental blank spot is that built-in forgetter. These are the two characteristics that all compulsive overeaters have in common. Now, what are the three traits? What are the three things about our compulsive overeating that really need to be remembered by all of us? And the only way to remember it is to teach it to other people. These are the three things that I've tried to, to emphasize. The disease is permanent. The disease doesn't go away. The line once, <clears throat> excuse me. That's better. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That information comes from the common sense of drinking Peabody, Richard Peabody, and Bill Wilson put it in the big book because he was so impressed with what Peabody had written. Permanent progressive. What does progressive mean? It means that your disease is getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and worse, and worse, whether you are compulsively overeating or not. Let's remember the story in chapter three of the man of 30. The man of 30 had been doing a great deal of spree drinking, and he decided that he was not going to drink at all until he was successful in business. For 25 years, he didn't touch a drop of liquor. I'm going to say that again. 25 years, this guy didn't touch a drink of liquor. Did his sobriety cure him? No. Did his sobriety slow down the onslaught of the progression of the disease? No. How do we know that? Out came his carpet slipper and a bottle, and within four years, he was dead. The disease is fatal. So let's go over that again. What do we know of alcoholism? It has two characteristics, the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. And the twist of the mind has a sidekick called the mental blank spot. Okay. Now the three traits are permanent, progressive, and fatal. Permanent, progressive, and fatal. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Just because you're overweight or underweight 
does not necessarily mean that you are a compulsive overeater. We come in various shapes and sizes and colors and varieties. Now, some of us can pass for normal. That was never my fate. I have not been able to pass for normal from the time I was in kindergarten. I was pretty much the fattest kid in the room, pretty much the fattest kid in the grade, pretty much the fattest kid in the school, pretty much the fattest kid in the neighborhood, pretty much the fattest kid anywhere around. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. By the time I was a sophomore in college, I was 500 pounds. By the time I graduated college, I was 600 pounds and I got to be much more. So I've never been able to walk out of the house and have anybody think to themselves, oh, that guy's normal. Not that people think that, but I have always been an object of ridicule. I have always been a person set apart from the norm because of all the addictions, this is one that you not only wear, but you wear it in a way, if you're like me, morbidly obese, you wear it in a way that really riles people up. They get very, very, very upset. When you're an obese American, you are open game for anybody with a wisecrack or anybody with any type of abuse that can be hurled, you will find yourself on the receiving end of it. If I say two and two is four and a thin kid says two and two is nine, he's right and I'm wrong because he can always counter with, yeah, but you're fat and he wins. So there's nothing more to be said about that. We've made the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. There are non-compulsive overeaters who struggle with food and weight. And there are also people who do not struggle with food or weight, but they have something called body dysmorphic disorder. And they see themselves as fat or they see themselves differently than they are. They are not compulsive overeaters. In some cases, they are people who just need a little help, and it may be in a different arena than here in Overeaters Anonymous. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. Let's read that again, because it's vital. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, that's because of the mental twist. The mind is in search of that effect. What is the effect? The effect is the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food. When I eat the food, the world goes away for about nine seconds and everything is okay. A Reese's peanut butter cup to me is like a Xanax. It's like a drink. It's a drug. I'm not eating Reese's peanut butter cups because I like the taste. To be perfectly honest with you, looking back, and I haven't had a Reese's peanut butter cup in 20 some years, I don't really know that I tasted them. I smelled them going in. I kind of smelled them, but I don't think I tasted them because the amount of time that they spent in my mouth was so 
record quick that it's not even funny. I wanted that Reese's peanut butter cup down my throat as quickly as I could possibly get it down there. So I was looking for an effect, just like my friends who drink. Now, I have very few friends who drink, but two do. I don't like a martini. I don't like the taste of it. I think it is the worst tasting thing I've ever put in my mouth in my 68 years of life. I have never once tasted anything as vile as a martini. And they laugh and say, oh, we don't taste them. We just drink them because they're getting something from that martini that I'm not getting. I get the effect from a McDonald's shake. I get that effect from chocolate milk. I get that effect from drinking uh, whatever, I don't know, sugary Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola. I don't get an effect from liquor. It does nothing for me. And because it does nothing for me, I've probably had less than 10 alcoholic beverages in my entire life. And I've never, ever finished one that I started probably. I don't think I ever finished one. And I've never been drunk on liquor in my entire life. It's just nothing that appeals to me. I'm also not a gambler. I've never done, I've never smoked a reefer. I've never done drugs. It can't be almost a quarter to the hour. Anyway, I've never done any of that stuff. It's nothing that ever appealed to me. But M&Ms with peanuts? Oh, now you're talking my kind of talk. M&Ms with peanuts. That's orgasmic. That's beautiful. I don't know who's buying the other M&Ms. Obviously, these are not Jewish people buying the other M&Ms. Why would somebody pay the same nickel or the same dime for M&Ms without peanuts? You can get the ones with peanuts. What is the problem with the, why would they even sell the ones without peanuts? But evidently, there's some crazy people out there. Okay, let's continue. You got to have a little nourish kite once in a while or life isn't worth living. You have little control over the amount you take. You are probably alcoholic, probably my foot. You are an alcoholic at that point. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Let's take a look at the last paragraph of the preceding chapter. Let's take a look at 43, page 43, the last paragraph. This is the last paragraph that we covered when I was uh, here two weeks ago before I went to um, uh, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. And by the way, I almost didn't come home. It is 30 degrees cooler in Flagstaff than it is here on the floor of the desert. Man, I when I got in the car to come home, I said to myself, I said, are you crazy? What are you doing? Are you nuts? And when I got in the car, it was uh, something like 61 degrees. When I got out of the car, it was 99 degrees. So I thought to myself, man, you've done some crazy things in your life, but this might be the craziest. All right. The last paragraph on page 43. Once more, 
the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense, now this is the sentence I want you to really hone in on, his defense must come from a higher power. So we see that in the big book, when it wants to teach us something, it spirals the information. What does that mean, spiral the information? It repeats things again and again. And on page 44, we just read, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, will most of us have a spiritual experience? I never have. Most of you will never have one. What is the difference? I'll cover that now so we don't get it later in the Q&A. A spiritual awakening is slow in developing, slow. It comes out over time. Mostly it's from the educational variety. What does that mean? We learn, we grow, we go to meetings, we hear this, we take a fifth step, we hear that, we take a 10th step, we hear this. And by and by, you start hearing these things over decades and it makes a difference because you're hearing things that are making you grow. But the most important thing is to keep working at it. If you stop working at it, you'll hear nothing and you'll die in the food. You can die with this disease. You can die from the disease. I'd much rather die with the disease than from the disease. But most of us will not have a spiritual experience. Remember that the author of the book was primarily Bill. Don't believe a lot of this hoopla about a hundred guys and people gave all. A lot of that is revisionist history. He wanted you to believe that so that he could defer a lot of the blowback. He, Bill, was the primary author, the primary scribe, and I believe God wrote the book. But a lot of this hooey about a hundred people that had input in it is revisionist history. It's not true. There were certain things, yes, but by and large, this is the product of God and Bill wrote it out. Bill was his scribe. Bill was 43 years old when this was written with three and a half years of sobriety. I am 68 with 23 years of sobriety, uh, abstinence, sorry. And I'm lucky I can knock out a coherent text message. So don't believe a lot of that hooey about a hundred people. I know it says it in the book. I know I got it. It's a lot of that is just revisionist history. It really is. Okay. Let's continue. To one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic. What is an agnostic? Ag means without, gnostic means knowledge. You're just not sure one way or the other. Is there a God? Is there not a God? You're just not sure. Such an experience seems impossible, but to continue as he is means disaster. And this is a sentence that is extremely important, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. This is the bottom line to the bottom line to the bottom line. My way sucks. I've tried everything. I have done everything and I have awakened in the middle of the night in Chicago. And I have gone out 
when WGN radio is on the radio, uh, the police are on the radio saying there is a weather advisory for Cook County, Will County, Lake County, DuPage County. Please do not leave your house if you don't have to. There's snow, ice, treacherous conditions. And there I am going down the street. Why? Because I got to have some French fried shrimp. I got to have some pizza. I got to have some M&Ms with peanuts. I got to have some whatever it is I'm jonesing for because I don't care what the weather is. I got to have what I got to have. My way sucks. It's time to let in some fresh air. What have you got to lose by letting in this concept in your mind and your heart and your soul of a power greater than yourself? What are you fighting and who's going to win? What are you fighting and who's going to win? You're winning against yourself. You're beating yourself down. You're defeating yourself. Let in some fresh air. Let in some fresh air. Don't keep the door, the window, or the mind closed. You have nothing to lose but your misery. We used to say this in meetings years and years ago. I haven't heard this for years. We used to say, I'm going back now 40 years, 42 years. Try it. And if it really is so terrible, we will refund your misery. Some of you old timers remember when we used to say that at every meeting. We used to say that at all meetings. Come to six meetings. And if you find you don't like what we have or are, we will refund your misery. What are you hanging on to? Ask yourself a question. Isn't something else better than the way you're living now? If you're new, obviously, if you're in recovery, no. But if you're new, isn't it better to let something in that might help Knowing full well, your way just blows chunks. It blows chunks. It's not an answer. It sucks. You're fighting yourself. Remember that there's four things all addicts do. They lie. You're lying to yourself that this is going to, this or that is going to help you. Vegan or keto or vegetarian or kosher or gluten free or whatever. It's not working. Let something else in. It's not about a food plan for the love of God. <clears throat> Let in some fresh air. Don't get in your own, get out of your own way. We lie, we assign blame. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't eat the way I am. If you've been with an alcoholic, that must sound familiar. Yeah, if you get off my back, witch, I wouldn't drink this way. Get off my back. No, they would drink. It would be something else. They lie, they assign blame, they keep score, and they fight battles that just don't exist. What battles are you fighting today? 
against God. Yes, there are headlines in the newspaper that suck. I agree with you. Yes, there's injustice in the world. And there are people that do terrible, terrible things. I get this call almost every day of my life. How can I believe in God when there was a Holocaust? How can I believe in God if there was slavery? How can I believe in God? And then you can fill in the blank. And my answer is, I don't know. But I do know that God didn't make a Holocaust and God didn't make people enslave other people into chattel slavery. He didn't do that. Human beings did. And he didn't put a bunch of robots on the earth. He didn't put a bunch of mindless robots. He put people that have free will. And some people use their free will to do lousy, terrible things. Now, there's 150 people here. Some of you have been raped. Some of you have been molested. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have had horrible injustices done to you that are horrific. And you may say to yourself, I'll never give this resentment up. I'll never trust God that if he can have little children shot at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park of all places, I will never believe in God. That's your choice. But understand that God didn't do that. And when those people were dying in the camps, and when those people for hundreds of years were slaves, he cried too. He cried too that he was just as upset about it as you or more so. That he thought that this is horrible. And every time somebody does something horrible, to another person. God is sitting with you crying too. But he didn't put a bunch of robots here. He put a bunch of people and those people have free will. And some of them choose to abandon their children, beat their children, rape their children, <clears throat> rob their children. Some people make dreadful, dreadful decisions. Sometimes those decisions are horrible, not just because of mental illness or misconce misconceptions of, of the world, but some of those misconceptions, some, excuse me, some of those mistakes are accentuated because the person is drunk or the person is high or they themselves were the victims of some horrible things. I'm not excusing it. I'm not explaining it. I'm just saying isn't it time to let in some fresh air and to say, I'll be damned if I'm going to let Eichmann and Hitler kill one more Jew. I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to eat myself into oblivion to pay Hitler back for the horrible things he did. I am not going to let Hitler kill one more person. If I can avoid it, I won't do it. I would never give that son of a bitch the satisfaction. He ain't going to get me. He got enough people with the same name as me. He ain't getting me. No way. 
No way is he getting me. And that means I have to forgive God. I don't have to forgive him necessarily, but I have to forgive God. I have to go on and I have to say, I'm going to recover in spite of these things. I'm going to recover. You can die because of the resentment or live in spite of that horrible thing. What's your choice to be? What is it that you want to do? Do you want to live or do you want to die? Now, let me tell you something very honestly before we finish this paragraph and then we'll be done for the day. If I honestly thought that by me eating Sara Lee brownie or, or if me eating Entenmann's today would mean so that no one was ever a slave in this country or any other country, I would eat the Entenmann's and die. I would. I, I, I'm not kidding you. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I would do it. I would do it. But how is me eating going to help them? And if you ask them, they would be the first to tell you, you eating that Entenmann's or you, it's Saturday night tonight. I'd be with my three dates, me, Sarah Lee, and little Debbie. There'd be a threesome, me, Sarah Lee, and little Debbie. We would have a threesome. And every once in a while, if we were in the right mood, we would invite Ben and Jerry. We would invite, you know, uh, whatever. We would invite uh, O. Henry. We would invite baby Ruth. You know, we'd invite others. But generally on Saturday night, it's going to be a threesome. Me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. If I thought that the Holocaust would never have happened by me eating pizza, I would go out now. Right now, I would eat pizza but it's not gonna help. How is you eating helping anything or anyone? It's not. Let's finish this paragraph. We're gonna go very slow in this chapter. This is a chapter that demands slow methodical progress. So bear with me in the weeks to come, but we're gonna finish. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face is accepting that there is a power greater than yourself so horrible for you? Are you so ego-driven that you cannot accept the fact that there is a power greater than you? Are you the be-all and the end-all? Did you create Lake Michigan? Did you create the stars? Did you create bumblebees, hummingbirds, owls, wolves? Did you? God can be great outdoors. God can be group of drunks. God can, if you're dyslexic, it can be dog. But the bottom line is, is that are you so driven egotistically that you refuse, absolutely refuse to accept the fact that you are not the highest power of the land, that there is a power indeed greater than yourself, which can solve your problem. I'm just writing down page 44, and then I just want to tell you. Now, we did not meet last week, but what I'm going to ask you on the honor system, please, I'm going to say, if you asked a question last time we met two weeks ago, please step back. Let people who didn't ask one come to the front. If you did ask a question the last time we were together and you 
want to ask one, I ask that you wait until they have had their chance to go first. Okay. Now, before I turn it over, I'm going to just, again, no math under any circumstances, no math, no food questions. Let's not waste the half hour answering questions about food plans when I don't know 